Letters Block, episode 11, Men of Letters, brought to you by Incognito. You'll never guess they're plumbers. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and The Peacekeepers. The other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the right is... David Avalone, also comic book writer and screenwriter and maker of things and stuff and junk. I want to do a shout out before we get this show started to uh, the beautiful and talented Jonathan Deiderstein, who has provided our new uh, theme music. Um, John has a great podcast himself called Settling the Score, where he talks about movie soundtrack music. Uh, he is a fine composer of movie scores, and uh, it is his area of speciality. Right. I'm, I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of the new uh the new theme. It's I'm great. really excited about really it. So great. thanks for that, John. Uh yeah, if you missed our last episode, the origin stories discussion with Eisner nominated Iron Man Scribe and Halt and Catch Fire showrunner Christopher Cantwell, as well as Ringo nominated Jupiter Jet writers Jason Inman and Ashley V. Robinson. That's a lot of ands and ins. Uh, I strongly suggest you back it on up and check it out. That was a great show, but we have an amazing show today also. Uh, Mr. Avalone, why don't you go ahead and bring our guests on? We would like to bring in Mr. John Lehman and Mr. Taylor Esposito. Howdy, howdy. Taylor, tell us a little bit about yourself. I waited until you were almost drinking. That was perfect, perfect timing. Um, a full-time letterer, a, a teacher at the Kubert School, and just a frazzled comic creator, as we all are. <laughs> John? Uh, I am mostly a comic book uh, writer. I also letter. I've edited. I've done design. Uh, I've been around for a while. Indeed, you have, and also a terrific person to run into at Comic Cons. At every, as everyone who has ever run into you as a, at a Comic Con knows. Um, our topic today: uh, Men of Letters. Uh, Rylan and I have always wanted to talk about process on the show. And uh, I think we can all agree there is no more misunderstood or ignored part of the process than lettering. And so we want to start with talking about how you got into it and what you dig about it before the conversation does its usual thing and strays off into uncharted territory. Sure. Uh, John, why don't you start? I, you know, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that you letter your own stuff even to this day. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I only letter my creator-owned stuff now. I've I've stopped lettering the work for hire after I completely effed up a job for Dynamite, um, and then I realized, all right, you know, I'm I'm not a real professional writer. I mean, uh, well, that too, uh, <laughs> letterer. Um, but I uh, so before I was in comics, I worked for the San Diego Union Tribune, and I was like Jimmy Olsen. Uh, you know, delivering mail and uh, doing the uh, the stock charts and the weather page, and uh, in those old days we used Aldous Freehand. Oh, I which, remember that. Which yeah, is wow. similar to uh, uh, to Illustrator, which I think everyone uses in in lettering now. And um, I got hired at Wildstorm, and you know it's all a bunch of twenty year olds, and they were, you know, it it was it was the end of the wild days in comics. And, uh, you know, and it was pre-fast internet where you were printing out film and then driving it to FedEx so it could get to the Canadian printers by, by Friday night. Yikes. And it would be Friday morning and I'd be calling a letterer for corrections. And um, 
they weren't around because you know they were partying all night. Um, and I I knew these programs because of uh, you know because of my my uh, newspaper work. So I think letterers loved to work with me because I would just do the corrections myself because I knew how. And uh, and then eventually I uh, I got my first kind of writing gig, which was a book called Bay City Jive. And to keep expenses down, I lettered it myself. You know, I, I knew the tools uh, and becoming an editor, you know, you're sort of forced to learn the philosophy like, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the way uh, your eye flows on a page and placements and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, it wasn't long being an editor that, you know, if, if you knew the tools, it was easy to be a letterer. Really interesting. And uh, Taylor, what about you? How'd you get into it? Well, before I get into that, I just want to say, John, thank you. Thank you. You understand it. <laughs> this is why I love working with you because you freaking get it. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> uh, anyway, I got in totally by accident. Um, so I started working at Marvel, like a temp job that was literally supposed to be two days. Like, hey, come in and do some some work. Okay, fine. Two days are up. Like, uh, do, do I come in tomorrow? Yeah, just keep coming in. Okay. Two days became like a week, became a month, and then it's like just just keep coming in, dude. Just we, we need you. So that ended up being like the digital comics, uh, you know, Marvel Unlimited before it had a name. Um, then I got sucked into the production department, like doing corrections, getting books out, um, uh, prepping files for the colorist, all this kind of stuff. And while I was doing that, I got really fascinated by what because I would see the back end, I'd see like the final product, like. I could figure out how to do this. So I, you know, I asked some, some letters, some advice. I got some books and I started just kind of figuring it out. And then like life being what it is, you get busy, kind of falls to the wayside. Um, and then uh, I got laid off at Marvel. I was like, Oh shit. What do I do? Wait, can I curse? No. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> what do I do? So I, I grabbed those books again. And I was like, all right, I got nothing to lose. Let me, let me try to be a letterer. So I started studying. I started like, you know, um, offering anybody who wanted me to work on their stuff to work on it, whatever. Uh, and I got moderately okay. Um, and then pretty much like a year to the day I got laid off from Marvel, I got hired at DC for the on-staff lettering. I was like, oh, great. Finally, vindication. This is actually worth it. Um, ended up working with um, the department there. So it was uh, Sal Cipriano, Desi and Carlos Miguel at the time. And it was great because I was basically learning on the job. I got to work in like a studio setting with other guys. Like, they, you know, they'd be like, oh, change that, do that. Oh, yes, sure, I got it. So I was picking up all these like years of experience without having to actually do it because like people were telling me, you're doing this right, you're doing this wrong. Um, and it was great. And that that's, you want to talk about, not that it was a stressful job, but like, you know, everything came in through the lettering department first and then to the freelancers. Obviously you want to keep costs down. You do stuff with the guys you have on staff. That job taught me how to get fast. Like there's a reason why you see me on like 20 books a month <laughs> because I learned how to do it on staff. Um, and then, yeah, and then they moved out to California, and I'm like, I'm not moving out to California. I love the East Coast too much. Where else am I going to get Taylor Ham? Um, <laughs> so I decided to stay here and open Ghost Glove. Mm -hmm. Ever since. 
And uh, how long ago was it that you got, that, when was the DC gig? Uh, DC was 2012 to 20, end of 2014, let's just call it 2015. So I've been freelancing since January of 2015. Cause I think, cause uh, for those that don't know, Taylor has lettered virtually everything I've ever written since the first book that we worked on together. I brought him on all my creator own stuff. And uh, Doc, I think it was Twilight Zone The Shadow. Yeah. the first thing we did together. That, that steampunk thing, right? Yeah, I don't think you were on that. I didn't do that one. And then there was Twilight Zone Shadow. Yeah. Then all of it. Doc Savage. Yeah, everything you've done in Dynamite, I've done for you. And then Drawing Blood. And yeah. Can we talk about the other thing? Uh, what other thing? Sure. Oh yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That's that's done. That's people have paid for it on Kickstarter. Nightmare. <laughs> Nightmare yeah, Nightmare, Nightmare anthology. Uh, I did an eight an eight page thing for that that uh, Taylor did some beautiful letters for. Um, and then how did you get hooked up with the Kubert School? Uh, well, Anthony, my editor, who sure. brought me on with you, uh, he bought the Kubert School, and he's like, "Hey, you want to teach?" I was like, "Yeah." I'm buying the school. You want to teach for me? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and now I've been doing that for two years. Nice. And John, I remember you telling me once you still lettered your creator own stuff, if nothing else, to get the last possible moment where you could make changes before the thing went to press. Is that true? Uh, no, I don't think so because a lot, a lot of other writers would be like, you know, I wish I could, I wish I could, uh, letter because I would be rewriting my stuff until the last minute. Mm -hmm. The writer and the letterer are two separate people to me. Yeah. Like I'm not a guy who's like uses the opportunity to try to rewrite my stuff. Like oh, okay. unless I have to, uh, I don't, uh, you know, I look at the, Hey, the writer turned in the script. It's my job to, uh, you know, just make it look good, not make changes. Yeah. I tried my damn, I mean, I, you know, it, it probably comes from, film and post-production work and whatever, but I hate the idea of making people do unnecessary work or redo oh. work just hurts my soul. So well, I think what I probably told you is because I can't draw, it's the closest thing I can do to adding another element to the page, you know, sure. of my vision, you know, I, mm -hmm. I'll never be able to draw anything, but I, you know, the, the lettering, you know, there is an art to it which I'm sure we're going to get into to, oh, uh, you know, to make it really look good to guide your eye and to have nobody notice what you're doing. Yeah. I think it's analogous in film to your sound mix in that if it's done well, you pay no attention to it. And if it's done horribly, it's the only thing you can see yeah. is that the yeah. eye trace is wrong and the balloon is covering the guy's finger. And that, you know, it's like when it's bad, it's, it's, yeah. it, you know, if, if you're a, a good letterer, you are by definition sort of the unsung hero uh, yeah. because people don't notice you unless you get to do some, you know, razzle dazzle sound effects. Yeah, no, that's a, that is absolutely the case. Uh, the only, <laughs> I try to make it so the only time I ever have to make changes to Taylor's work. Usually it's because Taylor trusts me too much on my spelling oh. and he will, he will faithfully recreate my bad spelling. <laughs> and then I don't see it, and I'm like, "Oh, that was yeah. I didn't actually intend that to be spelled wrong." <laughs> I don't. Well, know. I mean, I, I have been, you know, as an editor, there were 
and I, I'm sure Taylor encounters this, there are writers who use the second draft as an opportunity to like rewrite stuff. And yeah. it's like, mm. no, you you know, this this draft for your letterer is to correct mistakes, you know, not you know, not to you know, redo something and try to make it better. You had your chance. Uh, not to say that there won't be times where that comes up, like, you know, maybe there's some kind of art continuity issue and you're like, oh, this line just doesn't make sense. We have to rewrite this panel. Sure, but the people who do it routinely are the problem. Exactly. Exactly. Like, if if you come to me once every three years with this kind of correction, it's fine, whatever. You come to me once every three weeks with this issue, Yeah. dude, write your scripts properly. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. What I feel like one time in a million, I will write you and say, you know what? Now that I've seen this thing 300 times, that line of dialogue is terrible. Sure. Uh, and, and, and usually I think, I feel like my response is usually just get rid of it. <laughs> like I don't make you re- create a new, you know, redo it. Yeah, I'm just I love your correction. I usually drop it. It's like, okay, that's easy. Yeah. Enough. Just, just, just re- remove that layer and we'll be, uh, we'll be good. But, uh, but yeah, I do all of my rewrites after I've seen the last ink. I mean, and again, I try to get them fixed before we even get to that point. But as you were saying, sometimes there's just stuff in the art that you didn't know was coming and you have to respond to because it's well, great. I'm doing a weird thing right now. I'm working on a, a book called Bermuda with Nick Bradshaw for IDW, and he actually adds panels and adds a few moments, you know, adds some moments. And then I get it and it's like, I have to like actually do some writing, you know, I have to, and you know, it's cool because you know, I'm the, I'm, I'm the letterer. I have the uh, ability to kind of make it up on the sly, but mm-hmm. it, it goes against my, the writer and the letterer are two separate people kind of thing. And it's like, Oh, I, I literally have to write something to make it make sense because you know, this wasn't in the script. But I mean, John, I, go ahead. So ideally in that situation though, if, let's say you weren't the letterer, you'd still be getting the art back and you'd still have to do a lettering pass before. Correct. Yeah. yeah. True. So you'd have to write it anyway. It's just, you have yeah. to log mm-hmm. in while you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's on my, ver- like one of my very first comics, the artist drew something really funny. Uh, and it required, like it's something that wasn't in the panel description and it was the dumbest thing in the world. It was, a, it was two workmen hanging up political sign and for some reasons, and I think some of it was it was easier to draw, he drew the guy standing on his tiptoes on the top step of a ladder. <laughs> and there's a cop in the script. There's a cop watching them do it with his hands on his hips. And when I saw the panel, I had to have the cop says, I'm just saying he's the richest man in town. He could have gotten you a bigger ladder. <laughs> yeah, like the joke was not there until he drew the guy standing on his tiptoes on the top. Yeah. step of a ladder and again he may have driv- drawn it that way because it's easier than drawing a guy halfway up a ladder or mm-hmm. you know the ladder blocking the sign a little bit there's a million reasons he may have done it and there was another one with uh there was an issue same issue of that where uh it was a bunch of vampire hunters all getting together and there were these like stormtrooper characters in the series who had actual disintegrator rifles and van helsing is sitting there putting spikes in wooden stakes in his bandolier and he drew the stormtrooper standing next to Van Helsing with kind of his head cocked. And, and it was supposed to be a silent panel. And when I saw it, I was like, the stormtrooper is standing there holding a, a death ray, watching a guy put wooden stakes on his uniform. <laughs> uh, and the head cock just shows that there's an attitude. So I think I added the line. 
I can show you how one of these uh, disruptor rifles works if you want to borrow it for the mission. He's like, no, I'm good. <laughs> but yeah, I I love getting stuff like that where you go like, oh, I didn't I didn't see this coming. To, to that though, we we just encountered this in the book we just put to bed a couple weeks ago, where when the colors came in, you realize, oh, we can make a change here that's really funny. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, we had to add a couple balloons of dialogue here and there, but it wasn't that big a deal. It was fine. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's sort of like true collaboration there. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's different when you're not um, you're not putting undue burden on a letter for the sake of putting burden on them. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Yeah. No, I'm sure there. I you know, I'm sure there are writers out there that see a lettering proof and go and rewrite twenty lines of dialogue, and that yeah. to me, that's that's a crime. And that, that's the editor's job to spank them at that point and say, you know, you, you had your chance, had your chance you know? buddy. <laughs> yeah. It, it's kind of crazy. I mean, I, I come from a, you know, I come from a filmmaking background. So I, you know, going into it, I mean, you know, in terms of how the art is going, um, you know, I, I see it as an onset experience almost. I mean, it's like, you can, you know, as a director, you can, I mean, I, I, I went to the, you know, I have a, an MFA in film directing from the, the American film Institute conservatory, whatever the fuck that's worth. But, um, you know, I mean, you, you, you kind of learn to like, I mean, you can go in with a plan and you should go in with a plan, but you know, you, you know, everybody has a plan until they get hit, right. You get on set and things change and you have to be kind of open to what the actors are bringing and everything. And, you know, same thing with an artist. I mean, your artist is going to bring something very interesting. Your colorist is going to bring something, uh, 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 very interesting. Right. And, and, and you have to kind of be open to that and, be flexible to that uh, and 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 incorporate that. Um, but yeah, th- there's something about when it gets to the letterer, right? It's like um, it's it, it is like that editing room. Uh, uh, you know, when you're making a film, it's like, well, what you have on film, you have on film, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, so you got to kind of roll with it, and yeah, you know, maybe maybe cut this line or cut that line, and, yeah, and, and it this is only uh, I guess kind of tangentially related, but it's mm-hmm. a good story. Um, <laughs> We love I them. was uh, doing a, a Stephen Colbert's Tech Jansen comic book uh, years ago. Tom Pyre and I were writing it, you know, with Stephen Colbert, and uh, and you know we'd write it, but we'd get notes, and it was really weird because we'd, you know, hey, I'm sitting on my porch on a Sunday morning, and I had this idea, and we, you know, hey, this is Stephen Colbert sitting on his porch on Sunday, and uh, but he would keep coming back with notes, and he would keep coming back with notes. And he would keep coming back with notes and he was slowing down the book so much. And, you know, no one wants to say anything to Stephen Colbert that finally the editors stepped in and, you know, we'd had it. We're working at Oni rates divided by two on our eighth rewrite. So, you know, we could be pushing them up and making much better money. They say to Stephen Colbert, like, look, you know, we don't think this is working out. You clearly don't like these guys. You know, you're rewriting them you know, left and, or you're having them rewrite. And he's like, oh no, no, this is how I work with my writing staff. You know, we do this, you know, up until air date. And then we step back and they're like, well, there is no air date. You can't, you have to sign off at some point or no one can draw it. And it was like a light bulb went on. And then he sort of realized, oh, there's a point where, you know, I can't do it like TV. I can't work it till the end. And then, it went swimmingly, you know, but, but someone sort of had to have that conversation with them. You know, there's a point where the writer's done. Yeah, no, exactly. That's the, the, you know, and I think particularly for people who work in film and television, 
you do need to give them that analogy of, okay, Steven, here's the script. Yeah. We're shooting it tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. This goes to the artist tomorrow. You're done. You're like, at this point, you have to let it go. And again, it's like, especially working at Dynamite on stuff where I don't have tight editorial control. Uh, and really the only tight editorial control I have at Dynamite is when it's licensed products that have to go outside of Dynamite to be approved. Mm -hmm. uh, when it's stuff that doesn't have to go out to Dynamite to be approved, I will absolutely write a more first drafty, like as long as what's being drawn is okay, I can be a little placeholdery on the dialogue. That yeah. was never the case with Elvira because those are jokes. And if she doesn't, if the jokes aren't funny in the draft that goes to Cassandra, we're not making a comic book. Oh, yeah. Right, and you can't change it after the fact because what if she objects to whatever you change? Exactly, she has to sign off and I can't, and you know, I would do little piddly things around the end once we passed the approval process. Sure. You know, a word change, uh, but almost never a joke change. And I should say, for me at least, she was a complete delight and never had more than, I think the maximum notes I got on an issue was three jokes. And it's literally always, hey, you know, you don't have to use these. These are just three alts for you. Um, and uh, of course, I'm no fool. I use them. They're Elvira written jokes. Why sure. would I? Why would? Why would I say no to that? I'm, yeah. I, and I will say once I was one panel in the fourteen, sixteen issues we've worked on together. I just didn't have anything good, and I was spending too much time trying to come up with a good quip. And I went, you know what? I'm going to leave this perfectly lame quip here and have faith that I am going to get a note on this panel from her. And absolutely, that was one of the three panels she said, how about this? I'm like, thank you for identifying the one shitty line of dialogue I knew I was writing, you know? And I had absolute faith you would go, hey, that's actually uncharacteristically shitty. Let me change that for you. Um, just one joke we did change. In, in which? I forget which issue, but it was the one where I kind of rewrote it where I added my line of dialogue. You had a better joke than any of us for it, and I can't remember what it was oh, now. No, that, I remember that one too. That was the, the Bateman Begins joke. Yes, I had a joke in Shape of Elvira. Uh, Shape of Elvira was this parody of Shape of Water, of course, and the, the central conceit was that uh, the Del Toro-like director had found an actual South American river monster and was trying to mate it with Elvira to create a race of... <laughs> super beings and was doing it under the aegis of directing a movie about it. And the joke was they kept telling Elvira, your leading man is very method. You're never gonna see him outside of the costume. You're never gonna hear his real voice. So she kept playing this guessing game of who the tall, skinny, super method actor was. And I had a joke where she runs down the list of all of them and these federal agents were like, he's in Canada doing this, he's overseas doing that. And the Christian Bale was, he's doing the musical version of American Psycho. And I can't remember what my lame title was, but Taylor came up with Bateman Begins. And I was like, <laughs> nice. holy shit, that works on like eight levels. That is fantastic. We're going with it. And of course, Cassandra loved it uh, for obvious reasons. But yeah, like every once in a while, you know, you always, 
I mean, and again, it's a thing I learned from film, not to make this too much about film, but if the PA mumbles a good joke mm -hmm. just in your earshot, you put it in the friggin' movie. Like, you know? Collaborative, <laughs> whatever, if, whatever works. Yeah, like, it, you you never turn down a good idea just because it came from the wrong guy. Like, that's, that, that's suicide. And there's no guy wronger than me. I mean, what? <laughs> I'm wondering, John, have you ever worked Marvel style? No. no. Have you ever well, done it? Uh, I, I worked the opposite of Marvel style, where I did a full script and then just said, sort of said, this is what happens on these pages and let Sam Keith uh, kind of do his own thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's sort of the opposite of writing the... the so no, not Marvel style, but but working with Sam Keith is like working with nobody else. Yeah, sure. No, yeah, I mean that's the thing. Marvel style works if your partner is Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like if there's another super creative genius. And I have absolutely, uh, I've heard, I've told this story before, I think, on the podcast. But I did this thing with Eastman where he was drawing layouts. And it was a funny animals doing martial arts thing. And when I came to write the first fight scene, I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing scripting a funny animal fight scene with martial arts for Kevin freaking Eastman? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So I called them up and I said, you don't mind if I stand Lee my way through all of these fight scenes, right? And you just- Well, you know, a fight scene's kind of different. Usually I yeah. just say, here's the beats, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. this person gets the upper hand, then the other yeah. person gets the upper hand, you know, and here's how it ends, choreograph as you see fit. Yeah. Uh, fight scenes are the one thing that don't that that I don't that doesn't count to me. But yeah. but I could never work Marvel style because dialogue is the first thing I do. Sure. I, I mm -hmm. get all the dialogue and then I kind of figure out how to break it up. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I, I kinda have a rough idea in my head of what goes on in a panel, but panel descriptions are literally the last thing I do. Sure. And I can, if I've got everything paced and dialogued, to me, a script's done. Like, mm -hmm. panel descriptions is just shit I can do while I'm watching TV. You know, that's sure. a different side of the brain. No, I get that. I, I just did something with this eight-page thing that I had never done before, where it wasn't Marvel style, but it was something I was adapting from an old screenplay. And I just basically, I took out the references to things that were ridiculous for a comic book like he crosses the room it's like well obviously he's not crossing the room <laughs> in one panel he's you know but uh i just put page breaks in mm. and told the artist sylvia califano i think this can be covered in between four and eight panels on an individual page but you break the panels where you want you know here are the actions you know i just took a movie screenplay and went you know, kind of trying to figure out about what would fit. Yeah, I mean, but some artists like that. Out. Yeah, you, you just kind of got to know who you're working with. It's more, it's more free. You know, it's like okay, you know your beats, and you're just gonna like kind of fly through it. Like, not that I've watched wrestling in over 20 years, but like <laughs> when you hear wrestlers talk about how they work, it's like we know who the good guy is, we know who the bad guy is, we know some of the beats we need, and we know who's gonna end it. The rest of it is just having fun. Yeah. Okay. That makes perfect sense. That's exactly like, like what we're talking about. Yeah. And I should yeah, say, I've done that even with uh, Julius Oda on Betty Page. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I don't know if he does 
Brazilian martial arts, but there I gave I tested out on one issue saying, give me four panels of uh I can't remember which character it was doing knocking this guy out with judo. Mm-hmm. And he gave me four really great panels of judo that I could not have described in a trillion years. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I do not know those moves. I cannot break them down. Um, you know, so it's uh it's very useful in that way. It is one of the truly sort of freeing things, I guess, about, you know, writing comics is, you know, again, coming from like a, a movie TV background. I mean, there's a way you write it. Otherwise, nobody reads it. You know, um, there's no set way, obviously. And so, I mean, I, I do love these instances where you can kind of um, rather than writing a page, you write like an approach to a page or you write like a philosophical uh, idea that sparks a page in an artist's mind or something like that. I mean, yeah. it, it, it is really amazing. I mean, and, and you know, I see that pop up, uh, you know, once or twice an issue. Um, and I think that those end up being the pages that end up being very special. You know, they really stand out. I mean, in an issue, mm-hmm. um, it's always interesting. It's always rewarding. I mean, it's where kind of, uh, uh, it's you know, also than, scary as, as, as a writer who's a control freak is that's the point where you're like having to let yeah. go and trust your collaborator. Yeah. 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 But, I, mean, it's, I, I, I think it's easy to, it's easy for an artist, you know, particularly, uh, uh, one who's working a lot to kind of get into like the rhythm of just executing pages. Right. Oh, it's like, uh, you know, oh, he wants this, he wants this, he wants this, he wants this, but then they get to this page where suddenly it's this, like, it is this philosophical diatribe, right? And then they have to yeah. stop and really, it kind of shakes them out of their, their process and they have to think about it and uh, it gets the creative juices flowing and it kind of reinvigorates them, I think, for the rest of the uh, the, the enterprise. Um, there's, there's, there's a great anecdote about the gulf between what you can write and what you can create that I've always loved. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Adrian Lyne, but uh, when he was making uh, Jacob's Ladder, there was a line in the script about, you know, Jacob looks off to his left and the yawning abyss of the universe opens up. And apparently he called him in for a story conference, the writer in Bruce Joel, was it Bruce J. Rubin? I can't remember. And said, Bruce how, many car- how many carpenters do I need for the yawning abyss of the universe? Just out of curiosity. How many extra grips are we going to need that day? Can you can you describe something we can actually make happen here? Like, and <laughs> and to be and the sad part is that what happens in the movie is the walls drip blood, which is the least original response to that. Yeah. yeah. You know. <laughs> Adrian Lyne does not have, didn't have the imagination to make something interesting happen along those lines. Uh, but I just always love that. How many carpenters do I need for that? Just out of curiosity, because I don't know how to tell the guys in the art department to build the yawning abyss of the motherfucking universe. Like, you know, uh, well, 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 you know, it's, I mean, it's your job as a writer. Sometimes, I mean, on screen and and uh, and on a page, to sometimes, sometimes you're just throwing a pitch, hoping that your collaborator is going to hit it. Well, the the good thing about comics is, you know, there's no budget, so you can throw the craziest thing at the at the artist, and they don't have to worry about how many grips or you know the lighting or or the CG budget. So right, that's the great thing about comics. But I but you do have to look out for what is going to take a million years to draw. Yeah, I I just did uh, the Avira thing that I just did with Dave Acosta. I felt so, the climax is at the Hollywood Bowl and the Hollywood Bowl is full of zombies. And it just like, 
when I handed in the pages, I'm like, I'm so sorry, man. Well, I mean, the, the, the I was like, and I literally said, make the audience as sketchy and out of focus as you can possibly get away with. I'm so sorry, but this is how this story has to end. So that that is the opposite of Mark Miller, who uh, okay. when he would write a script, he'd tell the artist, now this has to be the, the craziest page you've ever drawn in your life. You have to work 80 hours on it, and I want you to kill yourself, but you'll be so proud. I have occasionally said to artists, hey, those, those, you know, they don't give you Eisners for drawing close-ups, buddy. Like, you know, I'm, I mean, you're going to have to do the hard things. But and the, the also, irony is sometimes the, uh, the hardest pages or, or the most involved and longest pages are the ones that take the, the, the least amount to write because you're mm -hmm. like, double page spread, you know, uh, downtown scene, tons of zombies. Okay, I wrote it. Took me three sentences. Now it's going to take you, you know, four days well, to draw. I mean, you know the uh, in, hey, in five pages of pages to work on. Yeah. No dialogue. Yeah. yeah. Pages dialogue. The uh, the screenwriting version of that. I don't know if you've heard this before, but the apparently the screenplay for Lawrence of Arabia has the one eighth of a page slug line. Lawrence takes Aqaba. <laughs> and it's literally like a month of shooting <laughs> and and 10,000 extras and explosives. And, you know, in the movie, it's not a lot of shots. Actually, they kind of he kind of does it with a pan of the cavalry racing through the town and all that. But it's still that thing of like, that's a very deceptive one eighth of page description. Yeah. Lawrence takes Aqaba. Our uh, our uh, uh, Avaloni and I, our, our mutual friend Stephen Prince, does this book called Monster Matador, which is hilarious. I mean, it's just a it's a, just a really fun indie book, and um, he for a few years drew it himself. And he is uh, uh, he'll be the first to say he's not the you know he's he's not going to be an Eisner nominated uh, artist anytime soon. Uh, and eventually, he kind of graduated to someone else drawing the book. And so I was looking over those scripts before he sent them off to this new artist. And he had one of these scenes we're talking about where it's like, um, you know, it's a, the, the book is about a matador and kind of a post-apocalyptic world that is infested with kaiju monsters. And this matador kind of wanders the earth like caning kung fu from town to town, kind of fighting these monsters. And it's one of these scenes where, uh, you know, it's like thousands of these like fly-like monsters are in the air and they're invading the town, right? And um, so he's writing that scene, uh, but in the script, the scene starts with this like block of an apology to the artist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry for asking you to do this. He's like, but here's what I did for you, you know, because he spent years drawing this thing. Uh, uh, I am proposing a way uh, to approach this digitally uh, to create these thousand monsters. <laughs> and so the script page is actually, hey, you can try this. This is a way to create these thousand monsters uh, in your digital program. And I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, yeah I've um, done that. I've it, apologized. It, and then I've even been like, yeah, this sucks. But here's why this is the most important page of the book, you know, to, yeah. to really like tell the artist, look, you know, I. Yeah. I appreciate your sacrifice. This is what it's for. Dave, Dave Acosta and Ben Bishop got into a conversation on Twitter because I had made them both draw traffic jams within a <laughs> one month period of each other. Dave's was a, a scene set in a circle of hell and it was a two page spread and it was amazing. Uh, Ben's was the main character from Drawing Blood arrives in LA and he's in traffic getting away from LAX. And I think I even put in the script, it's like, 
you can be pretty tight on the car in traffic. I just need to see the bumpers. But Ben being Ben, he, you know, he widened out the panel and you can see all these cars stretching back off the 405. <laughs> but it was just funny, two of my artists both saying, oh, I drew a traffic jam for Avalone too. And Jesus fucking Christ, <laughs> you know, like, it's not fair. was great. That's the one with the with all the honks I did, right? Yes, you I you then had to put a honk next to every car. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and I think I even said that. I was like, I'm not telling you how many honks belong on the page, but the sheer weight of honks should sink. That, that's nothing. I got a page for Anthony on Green Hornet this week. Yeah. It's, no, it's, it's Green Hornet and Cato this big. The rest mm -hmm. of the page is all white. He's like, fill it in blams. Okay. <laughs> there must be over 2,000 blames on that page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to change the subject. Uh, and we got Taylor here. Taylor, what's, and we're sort of there. I'm just curious, what's your approach to sound effects, Taylor? What do you mean, what's my approach to sound effects? In what sense? Do you have a default that you go to? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I reuse sound effects like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> I have a basic layout, and then unless I get asked for something special, I'll do something crazy because yeah. nobody pays me enough. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I have uh, built a um, you know a page of of my favorite sound effects, and I have certain sound fight sound effects that I'll I will you know go to. Oh yeah, especially if it's like a repeat. Yeah, like sound is supposed to be exactly the same every time. Yeah, just reuse it over and over again. Yeah. There's a, there's a, I feel like there's an online database of old sound effects that I used to look at because sound effect, the first script I wrote, I didn't even put sound effects in it because I'm that sound effect averse. Okay. Um, and I need to, just cause I, I, it's sound effects to me are that thing that shouldn't work and should be silly and should be ridiculous. And it's not at all true. It works and it's necessary and it's comics being comics as opposed to comics being movies or comics being anything else. Oh, so it won you over eventually. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I'm actually... No, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, was, I do have a theory that like, sound effects can help a scene, but a well-drawn scene shouldn't need sound effects because you should feel the sound coming up. Like when Acosta drew the 504, what was the 504? Or was the, it you, you mean the, the, the freeway? Oh. Yeah, the hell for all that. It didn't need the honks. Like no. I felt the chaos of that scene. Yeah, the honks help, but yep. it was fine without it. You know. Yeah, the honks. The honks to me were just an additional laugh. Yeah, exactly. I but have like, a friend. I have a friend who writes sitcoms, and he always refers to the free joke. And to me, that's that's <clears> just a free joke. It's sitting right there. You put it in, and people are going to laugh at it when they. It's funny without the honks because it's a wild shot. But if you add the honks, that's just just over the top, yeah. Yeah, uh, say, sound effects. Uh, sound effects are such an interesting thing. I mean, um, I, the I, I have a letter. His name is HDE, who I who pretty much does all my books, and he's based out of the UK. And it was funny when we were, um, you know, before we were talking about the uh, we were talking about notes you give your your letter. And I think the most frequent note I have to give him is to, uh, you know. Uh, remove uh, use out of uh, uh, you know words like honored and um, uh, but um, yeah the sound effects thing and, and this had to kind of evolve over time because my my scripts you know my scripts are always very precise and particularly in the beginning it was like I want this right um, but you learn to trust your letter and um, and particularly he does sound effects so much better than I would do sound effects. 
and I can stick to my guns and say selling them out. Well, it, it it's both. It is just it is a philosophical approach. But you know, again, I can write crash, but he will create a crash sound effect that is so much better and so much more impactful. And it ends up being a it ends up being a mix of letters I never would have in a million yeah. years put together. Oh, but sure. it is so effective on the page. I mean, he was he was nominated for a Ringo. Uh, uh, this last year for my book Banjax, and um, and and it was it was so well deserved. I mean, uh, Banjax is like a it, it, it is it's basically Death Wish with a superhero. It's about a superhero who goes rogue, and he's he he finds out he has terminal cancer. He's trying to clean clean up the city before he he goes. You know, he has three months to live, and and it is just very visceral. These fight scenes with things breaking and 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 crashing and crunching and all of these things, and um and he just really brought it to life in a way that. I couldn't have even imagined. And so um, I've learned to kind of defer to him and kind of work off of him. And um, and so my scripts, you know, if I were sending a script to a random letterer, it would be a certain way, right? But knowing what he brings to the table, um, a lot of times my sound effects are, it's like, you know, it's nothing precise. It's not like window breaking, you know, uh, crash. It is you know, uh, do we need a sound effect here? You know, oh. do we need a sound effect here? And then I do that too. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Use your judgment here. Um, In my uh, script these days, yeah. especially for a fight, I'll be like, look, sound effects will come on final script pass, you know, yeah. after yeah. I see the art, if there's going to be sound effects. Because like yeah. Taylor says, sometimes you don't need it. You know, yeah. sometimes, yeah. You know, sometimes you don't, it, does, it doesn't. It, 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 yeah, and and that ends up being a big question that goes into my my you know is it, sometimes I'm whatever I'm writing a fight scene or I'm writing a, a whatever and I'm like okay well note two letter you're gonna you're you're gonna see about a dozen sound effects down below like we probably need four of them you know I uh, uh, let me know what you think you know I, I trust your judgment and then I get the draft back and he's picked four or five of them and and they were the right ones usually you know and sometimes there's sometimes there, there's a debate sometimes I come back with hey do you you know do you think we need a, a, a shattering sound effect on this window? Um, and, and usually he has a very specific reason why he doesn't think so or whatever. And it turns into this. And, and, and it is interesting that like those conversations end up, I mean, you, you, you get a comic issue to like 98%, right? And sometimes that final 2% is the difference between like good and great. Right. And of course you don't want to like agonize too much out of these things and like drag it out. But you know, what I find out is just having like a couple of conversations like that, every issue, it really kind of, I mean, it, 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 it puts it over the, the finish line, you know? Um, uh, I mean, I think Banjax ended up being a great book because of conversations I was having like that with him and with the artists. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, the more communication with the, the your collaborators, the, the better. And I always try to, you know, have some sort of, and it's weird because certain, especially with the big two, Editors don't necessarily want you talking to the the uh, you know they they like to keep their chain of command, but it's yeah. always good to I don't know even send a an email after the fact you know hey you know you did a you know you did a great job you know I like this issue it's like uh, no it's that small world you know I always get death threats I mean <laughs> I that kind of I got to say I've I've had a couple experiences with that kind of gatekeeping stuff uh, not so much a dynamite but with people trying to like be like yeah. all of it should go through me. And there's definitely something I've made mistakes where I've contacted people directly about 
changes and then the editor didn't know they were looking yeah, at that. That's, that's a no-no. That's one thing. That's yeah, one thing. Yeah. You know, where I, the editor I, yeah, just got dropped I, I, on a I, dropped on a CC or a BCC and I didn't notice that they weren't there and then they upload the wrong page and I'm like, well, that's three versions. Of yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I should totally clarify that Banjax is a creator-owned book and I'm the editor on it. So right. that, 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 that's, that's why these extended conversations are, are happening. I would never do that on my well, Dynamite I, book. or on, I've done on things like where that, I'll, but, yeah. you know, I'll write the artist and be like, just so you know, you're going to have work soon. Here's the script. Don't start it. It's not approved. You right. haven't actually seen this. But it's just uh, like I do that all the time, yeah. I mean, like... Me and David, David talk all the time. It's like, I'll get the script early and I'll be like, hey, I flipped through it. Uh, what do you want me to do with this? What do you want me to do with that? Just so I'm thinking about it. You know, I don't yeah, want sure. to be cold. If you go in yeah. cold, you're kind of like, put it this way. You, you heard, you, you've heard the idea of like, it takes an artist like three or four issues to find their legs on a new book, right? The same idea, like on a smaller scale, obviously. Your first pages are not going to be the best. So if you can at least think about it before you start, you're kind of working out the cobwebs and you're figuring, okay, this is the visual language I want to use. And this is the kind of tone I want to convey. Because if you just start on page one without having seen anything, you're kind of blind. And then you're halfway through like, oh, okay, this is what I wanted to do. Now yeah. I have to go back and fix everything. You know, like it's just a way to, to warm up as, as opposed to just being like, okay, now we're starting. <laughs> Something you did, Taylor, on I think Charlie's Angels and Mars Attacks, and and I, it's been done. Bef the the good letterers do this, is you sent several different captions, uh, styles, and yeah, been we like, all right, what do we use? And figuring that shit out beforehand, well, I mean, works out so much better than change everything after the fact. It, the thing, it just makes my job easier. I like going into an issue knowing everything I need to do. Because the second someone changes something or someone comes up with something halfway through the issue, I've got to copy it and go back to every other page yeah. and readjust. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also just, again, the collaborative process. Here's what I'm thinking based on your script and based on this art. This is the visual language I want to convey. This is their captions. This is how they move. You know, like we, we didn't really do much captions with Elvira, but, you know, when I made the Elvira caption, um, I wanted something fairly simple, but that kind of felt a little spooky. Mm -hmm. So it was just black, purple with a little spider web out in the corner. And that, yeah. It didn't well, yeah, more with it was more of a, a factor in both Drawing Blood and uh, Betty Page are first person narrators. Exactly. So it has to be a little more personal. It has to be a, have a little more of a, a reason for being. And I have to say, uh, Acosta really ch helped me out. When I first started writing comics, because of coming from the movie thing, I did very cinematic comics and I had no captions because there are no captions in movies. There was dialogue, there was sound effects, and there was picture. And if you couldn't sell the idea that way, I felt like you're failing. And Acosta wrote me and said, let comics be comics, man. Like, don't make me have to make every visual transition and new idea work. Like, that's actually putting a lot of work on the artist to to tell you everything, sure, or sound effects. He's like, you can you can save a lot of time in storytelling with a little caption box. And I went back and sort of brushed up a little bit, and I still use them sparingly in what I'll call third person comics. Um, 
but in first person comics, I use them constantly and I love them <laughs> because you can, you can just, you can make the most mundane thing interesting by knowing what the character is thinking and knowing what's in their head and knowing how it relates to future events and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, but yeah, it's like, that's something that came from Dave Acosta came from an artist that we had done eight issues together when he said, loosen up, man, use some captions. You'll love it. <laughs> you know? And well, uh, that was one of the things I think that, that really helped chew because chew, especially the first issue had a lot of, a lot of ideas for the, for the reader to absorb. And I did this thing where I was like, this is Tony Chu. This is his power. This is what his power can do. Boom. And then it yeah. gave me the freedom to do that every issue. And once the reader accepted it, th there, there's no learning curve to it. Like right. it's on the page right there. And then we can just get into the story. Yeah. Though I, I will say one of my favorite things about modern comics that did not exist when I was a kid is the inside the front cover recap. Oh yeah, uh, sure. You read an old Marvel comic and there's a full first two pages of Oh yeah. Especially those Claremont issues. Either, oh my god, Chris Claremont. You get either the badly written uh editor blurb that says, Remember last time kids when Han yeah. Solo and Luke rescued Princess Leia? Well now they're trapped in that corridor. That was the first issue of Star Wars I ever read, which is yeah. why that's in my head. You know, well, catch you know up, it was pre trade as well. You know, they yeah. nobody was writing for a trade these days. Exactly. So and then you get and then you worse, you get the dialogue, yeah. which I don't well, understand, I Professor Xavier. You just you just recently said X, yeah. Y, and Z after we met with Magneto on that thing that happened that we all both know, and I don't know why I'm telling you something you already know. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. worst the worst line of dialogue in the history of mankind that is always followed by the second worst dialogue in the history of mankind is, as you know. Yeah. yeah. If you write a character saying, as you know, you have failed in every conceivable way as a storyteller. As you know, you've been a, an FBI agent for five years. It's like, yeah, why would you tell me that? I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand why you're saying that to me. Are, is there someone else in the room? What's, mm. you know, and I'm so glad and luckily, Dynamite let me have fun with them, and make them. They're in the Betty Page series in particular, and in the there's a running gag in Elvira actually, where in the first two issues she does on-panel recaps, and then mm -hmm. the third issue she says, "Get off your ass and write something in the inside front cover." I'm not doing this anymore, <laughs> you know. And then in the inside front cover, of the fourth issue, it's something like, you know. Last issue, Elvira, comma, you know, mistress of I don't do recaps, comma, <laughs> uh, found herself. Uh, and I, you know, the ability to play with the form like that, you know, it's it's a natural thing to do in comics, certainly. Sure. But, uh, but yeah, it took me a long time to come around to captions and a long time to come around. I would look at old comic books for sound effects. Mm -hmm. You know, the first time I wrote a gunfight, I'm like, what's a Russ Heath? machine gun sound like in the 1970s that's what's what you're for yeah what's a, what's a what's a jack kirby machine gun sound like uh, I, I i i i was the exact opposite in terms of coming around to that stuff like i dove into the deep end head first i mean for me um i mean i had been i've been writing in hollywood for about a dozen years and um and you know i i mean i came up in the the sundance era and i i saw pulp fiction and i saw it and it blew my fucking mind and i i, I was like i want to do that and so I came out to LA to do that. 
Um, but by the time I got spit into the workforce, like Hollywood had stopped doing that, right? Like the the um, the uh, the writer strike happens right around the time of the financial crisis, and the entire independent film movement dries up, and it moves on to TV in in a weird way. But um, so I get I sound like an asshole when I say this, but I, I get stuck writing kind of like big, kind of poppy action movies, right? And um, and it's great and it's fun and, and, you know, and I love that that's my day job. Um, but it's very restrictive, right? Like Hollywood, basically they, they make about five different kinds of movies these days. Right. And they, they want them all written a certain way. And, you know, you try and put voiceover in a Hollywood script and, and, and the first thing is, Oh, that's out. You know, you, you try to do anything different. That's out, that's out, that's out. Um, and so, uh, you know, after about a dozen years, I found myself kind of, I don't know, stuck in a rut, you know, it was like things were stale and I was a little bit miserable. Um, and I found myself kind of looking at things being like, well, can I actually do this for another dozen years? I, I don't know if I can, I'm kind of losing my mind here. And comics kind of saved me creatively because like the beauty of comics is like, we've kind of already said it without saying it is that you can do anything in a comic book, like any way is yeah. you tell any sort of story, any kind of way, as long as it's good, right. As long as a reader is going to digest it. And so that was, that was amazing to me. And so it was like, when I, when I sat down to do Aberrant, my first book, it was, um, I made a deal with myself that I was never going to tell a straightforward story. Right. And so I doubled and sort of tripled down on all these things on, 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 on voiceover and, and unreliable narrators and, um, and, 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 you know, point of view shifts and, um, and experimental elements, you know, um, uh, there's, there's, uh, there is an, an issue of aberrant uh you know one of the characters is kind of dying on an operating table and uh and while that's happening he uh he's a huge fan of the game show jeopardy and so while he's while that's happening he imagines himself on an episode of jeopardy um the other contestants uh on the show are his enemies in the book um and all of the categories uh have to do with kind of major moments in his life and it becomes a kind of this is your life episode and it's just bonkers it's just just batshit crazy right um, the, the, the second, uh, issue of Banjax is told from the point of view of a man who hasn't slept in like six days and he's, he's literally being driven mad by it. And so you are seeing the entire, uh, um, you're seeing the, you know, you're seeing all the happenings of the issue through his eyes and you don't kind of know what's real and what isn't. And, and, and it's just, you know, and, and, and for me at the very least, and I think for the reader, because they've, you know, they, they've been successful enough um it was it was so much fun it was so freeing it was so you know and and so if anything evelyn i went the opposite way where maybe i kind of overused those tools like gleefully and unapologetically right off the bat and i kind of had to learn to sort of uh rein myself in a little bit um and and, well but it is worth noticing noting you're you are talking about creator-owned books if you're sure sure yeah yeah yeah, you're on a big two heavily licensed you are, do not get to do whatever you want and do use whatever stellar. T- I mean, and I've never been anywhere near huge licenses like that. Uh, well, here's the thing for, for Hollywood, and and I I have some video game background. The bigger the thing, the more chefs in the kitchen. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's 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 more chefs in a Batman comic than there is in a Hollywood movie. I can't and even probably can't the purest curious thing you're going to get is a creator owned book where you're the writer and the artist, you know, where you're doing it, sure. you know, um, you know, like, uh, like Andrew McLean doing, uh, uh, 
uh, head lopper. You know, that that's that's as pure as an artist's vision as you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even writing Batman, having to color within the lines, still better than, you know, 20 studio executives giving you notes. Oh, absolutely. I, the yeah. only... The only licensing note I ever got, really, I did a Doc Savage, one of my first comics, where an experiment goes wrong. And the Doc Savage people were like, Doc Savage doesn't have experiments that go wrong. (laughs) And I wrote the editor and I said, I'm going (laughs) to write a speech on the first page where Doc Savage tells his men, this is a very dangerous experiment and it could go wrong. But what we're trying to learn is so important to the future of mankind, we must take the risk. And they loved that. As long as Doc Savage knew it could go wrong, it didn't violate their idea of him. But Doc Savage having experience happened to him in a science lab where he goes, whoa, hey, what the hell? Who knew this could happen? It's like they were like, no, Doc Savage does not get shit wrong like that. I, uh, I, I, I wrote for Jason Statham one time. And um, and I made the mistake of, uh, of uh, he's... He's in a fight, and um, and he's you know he's fighting three four guys, and he ultimately wins the fight. But he takes a pretty good shot during the fight in the middle of it, and ends up flat on the ground, right? And um, the very vociferous note that came back is, "This needs to go. Jason doesn't go down." Um, and so try writing, you know, an entire action film where you know you have this hero who I mean he, you know, he, he fights four dozen people in this, uh, in this, in, in this script. And he basically cannot, you know, he cannot take too hard a shot. He can never go down. Um, uh, he can never be winded. He can never, uh, 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 express pain, uh, uh, or, um, or so the, the jeopardy has to come elsewhere. elsewhere. Yeah. It was, uh, he, he's just, he's just an unstoppable badass. He's basically a runaway train and, uh, and, and his victory is all but certain. Uh, uh we're just kind of watching him, uh, uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, we're just along for the ride, and uh, and setbacks are, uh, are 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 left to the side. Yeah. No, well, and of course- I think there's a a level of comfort food to that to uh, the mainstream audience. You know, they don't yeah, want. Yeah. You know, they they want to know what's going to happen, and they're going to get their happy ending, and the happy ending is a, a bunch of guys getting the fuck beat out of them who deserve well, it. There's the there's the quote from uh, William Goldman's screenwriting uh, uh, book. Uh, adventures in the screen trade where he says movie stars do not want to be the guy who learns. They want to be the guy who knows. Yeah, and that yeah. is completely antithetical to storytelling, by the way. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's completely not how you tell a story is about a guy who understands everything on the first page and has learned nothing by the page 120. Right. Where, where's but, the arc unless he's training someone. Right. So that whole like having to deal with that ego and again, you know, I'm sure there are variations of that in writing some of the license stuff for the big two. I'm very the biggest license I ever worked on was the very first job I ever had, which was a Star Wars thing, and it was at a moment when literally no one was paying attention to Star Wars as hard as that is to imagine. So I wrote a no, short I remember story. those days. Yeah, I wrote a short story, four short stories for the role-playing game. And nobody cared. <laughs> nobody paid attention. And I did things that no one would let me do if I was writing Star Wars for Marvel. Yeah, that's I killed that's I killed I killed, Star Wars. I killed IG eighty eight in my short story, in my Star Wars short story. And years later I went, No way that gets past Lucasfilm yeah. now, where you kill yeah. a named character off in a 
in a short story in a in a video game, you know, in a in a role playing game. But uh, but you know, I was like I said, I was lucky to get into that <laughs> that thin moment between the cancellation of Joe Duffy's Star Wars comic and the Dark Horse comic. There's literally nothing being produced for Star Wars except that role playing game, and that's the that's the safety of it. And that's you know the, the there are so many rewards obviously to doing your own work and owning your own stuff. Uh, it would take too long to list them. We all do want to play with the action figures that we grew up playing with, and that's the attraction of working for you know Disney, of working for Warner Brothers, of working for any of the big companies. But ultimately, the yayas you will be able to get out doing that. Compare, I mean, look at Astro City. Uh, Astro City is Kurt Busiek. I never know how to pronounce his last name. Uh, just yeah, writing. Did, was that right? Just writing all the Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman comics. No one would ever, 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 ever let him write in a million years. Yeah, and they're great, and the characters you can enjoy <clears throat> them without them simply being analogs of mm-hmm. other more famous characters. You can invest in that universe and not just be sitting there going Samaritan is Superman. Let me just keep thinking that over and over again while I read this, that fades very quickly, but it just shows like someone who's that talented, who's that great at what he does has an endless supply of stories. He would do with Marvel and DC's characters that he can plug into Astro city because they will never ever be done you know, with those main characters. Well, sure. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm on to other things now, but if you look at my first two books, I mean, uh, I mean, in a way they were, you know, I was, I mean, I've been writing in Hollywood for a while, but it was, had just transitioned into comics. And so my first two books were very much uh, me kind of processing 30 plus years of reading, digesting comics. And so, you know, it is, I mean, it's veiled a little bit, but there's a way of looking at Aberrant and Banjax. Aberrant is very much my cap in my Captain America book, and Banjax is my Batman book. And 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 you know, I, I mean, I remember being on a panel at San Diego Comic Con with David Pepos, and he knows my books pretty well, and he had never thought about that. And I said that during a panel at Comic Con, and 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 like his eyes lit up, and he's like. He's like, you know, I never thought, but yeah, that's absolutely right. And so, you know, I, I, I think we all, we all sort of yeah. find our way of doing that. It was almost something I had to do before I could move on and do something kind of that was completely off the wall and original. And again, I'm, I'm down the line and off to, to, to different stuff now. I don't know that I'd ever kind of do a, a superhero again, unless the, um, yeah. you know, unless, unless the big two came coming. But, uh, but, you know, I think we all have that in us and we all have those stories that, that, that we need to tell and want to tell. And again, you know, I mean, those, those, uh, it was like you said, those arenas are so restrictive that, uh, it's, it's kind of amazing to, yeah. I don't know, take the gloves off. And the, in punches. my, in my early to mid twenties, I was a, uh, famous exploitation movie directors ghost and ghost co-wrote and ghost co-directed two of his movies. I won't say the name out loud, but, uh, the first one is absolutely you only live twice. And the second one is absolutely diamonds are forever because no one's going to let me make a James Bond movie. Uh-huh. So I'm going to make crypto James Bond movies. You know, someone, someone gave me the access to, you know, a little bit under a million dollars to make a couple of spy movies that went straight to cable. And I'm like, well, this one is going to lean heavily on you only live twice. And this one is going to lean heavily on diamond. I mean, literally the second movie is about a diamond and it takes place in Las Vegas. It's, it is unsubtle in the extreme. 
but I think we all we all do that, especially at the beginning. You have to get out your, uh, you know, get your yayas out with that stuff. And I still like the degree of ridiculous references to other things that you love. You know, I don't know that I'll ever let go of that. <laughs> you know, of peppering everything with allusions to. Uh, to the work that you love. The the thing always is, you know, what can you bring that's new? What's your, you know, what's your bent on it? And is that original enough? Or are you literally just filing the serial numbers off and doing the same thing? You know? Uh, well, you know, I, I had the opportunity to, to actually not have to file the serial numbers because they, they, they gave me Batman. And, right. uh, and it seemed like a giant mistake. Uh, and so I thought I'm just going to play with as many characters until they sober up and get rid of me. And, uh, you know, I was able to play with all my favorite characters for about, you know, for about two years, a little over two years. It was great. Yeah. That is, I felt that way about, I always say, I want to like kind of whisper this at cons cause I would like to, you know, make a decent page rate at some point in my life. But I, I'd rather write the shadow than Batman. And I'd rather well, write. Doc Savage than Superman, and you know Here's it's like thing. you're talking about licensed characters versus the big two. They're yeah. all licensed characters. Yeah. It's just somehow the big two and superheroes have this sort of like rarefied air, like that's what we're supposed to pursue. Yeah, and I love writing Batman, uh, but I also loved writing Godzilla and Mars Attacks. And sure. like, sure, Batman pays more and and has more eyes on it, but yeah. it's it, it's still it's just another toy that you don't own oh absolutely absolutely and you know yeah, I, go ahead God. i was just gonna say we, we we've had this conversation before on here i mean i think we actually did like a license uh a playing with other people's toys uh episode and and i mean you know as a creator you get this question all the time right like uh you know oh well you know if, if you could write any character out there like w which would you write and um and you know answering that answering that question for the first year or two you know, I, I didn't really know how to answer it. You know, you just kind of, you just sort of, I don't know, you just ramble a bit. Oh, I guess Moon Knight would be okay. Or, you know, there's a Batman story I'd tell or whatever. But it's like, but but at some point I had to kind of like take a step back and be like, well, you know, that's not really the truth. That's kind of the canned off the top of right. my head, nonsensical answer. It's the, it's the thing I'm supposed to say. But what do I really want to write? And, and, and it took me a while, but it's like, you know, um, you know, not that I, I turned down a big two job or whatever, but that's not the thing that would like truly excite me. And I'm, I'm in this weird place where again, my day job is writing movies and TV shows. So it's like, I, you know, I, I, I don't need to get the big pay trade or anything like that. You know, again, I'm not going to turn one down and I don't want to sound like an asshole saying that, but, it, but it's like, I only have so much comic bandwidth and, and sure. it's like, you know, I, you know, I think my, <laughs> I mean, my dream is like, my, uh, it's the weirdest thing ever, but you know, I want to write like I want to write a, a a Cobra Kai story for IDW. You know, Johnny Lawrence is my spirit animal. Like that's what gets my juices flowing. Like I came, uh, um, I came to uh, you know within an inch of uh, of doing a a short circuit uh, reboot in uh, in comics. Uh, oh, wow. I was really excited about really excited about that. Um, and, and, uh, I was talking, um, you know, cause I have these weird, um, I have these weird movie connections. And so I'm, I've been trying to build these kind of bridges between comics and movies for a while. And, um, I was talking to, uh, uh, people at universal about the midnight run property, um, uh, 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 uh about maybe a comic, uh, uh, you know, set in that sort of world also. And it's like, so, so, so these are the weird oddball things that get me excited. Um, you know, doing an Axel Foley story or something like that. 
Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. something to be said that when a character has been around for 100 years, 90 years, yeah. like a lot of story, it's a lot more hard work to come up with the original Batman story than the original Doc Savage story. <laughs> you know, like just sheerly because there's the weight of what everyone else has done. Yeah. Um, you know, and well, you know, to that, degree, you can ignore you some of that. You don't have the most original story. You have a story in your voice. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And your and ultimately your voice is literally all you've got, you know, because I'm sure if I poured through all the Batman, my shit's been done before, but yeah. wasn't done in my voice, you know? Right. So, and that's, that is ultimately what you have to bring to it. Uh, well, I mean, as an artist, when you look at something like her, can we all agree the most popular show right now is probably the Mandalorian? Yeah, the Mandalorian. Yeah. At it's least with nerds, done. <laughs> Every single episode is something else we've seen before. Oh my oh, god! Yeah, yeah. Every just just, just, just yeah, just, just redo a different uh, iconic western, right? Well, yeah. and 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 yeah. also, there's kind of a joke about hour long, and it's barely an hour long, but about hour-long action shows on television that they will all eventually get to the Magnificent Seven and the Guns of Navarone. Like, you know, eventually, and the greatest, like, they will all have plug in. We'll get to the plug-in of those, you know, incredibly. I always say about Mandalorian, the lesson to learn from the Mandalorian, and I wish people more people would learn it, is when you come to a project, particularly something like Star Wars that's so influenced by previous art don't imitate george lucas imitate john ford and akira kurosawa imitate the thing that was being imitated by the first guy yeah because otherwise you're making a xerox of a xerox of a xerox it's like you know it uh, you know and again not to get on my you know one of my usual rants about tarantino but like when tarantino said he prefer his favorite director was brian de palma i'm like no, your favorite director is Alfred Hitchcock. Brian De Palma is the guy imitating Hitchcock. <laughs> you know, like, how can you love the margarine more than the butter? Yeah. But there are people who love margarine. Like, I get it. I totally get it. But it's that thing of, I think the smart thing they did on Mandalorian, the smartest thing is they went, okay, Star Wars is based on Hidden Fortress. Let's scroll through some other samurai movies and yeah. see... You know, oh, Lone Wolf and Cub. That hasn't been done in Star Wars. Let's do Lone Wolf and Cub. And even Lone Wolf and Cub, these stories are eternal. There's a John Ford Western called Three Godfathers about gunfighter outlaws that find a baby in the desert and have to take care of him. So John Ford got there before even Lone Wolf and Cub. Like, it's all been done. But as you say, it's what can I bring to it? It's not how can I best imitate Jack Kirby it's what was Jack Kirby imitating? Yeah. What in, what inspired Jack Kirby? That's what you want to look at, you know. But we should wrap this up. It's been an hour, and it has been lovely talking to you guys. Anyone have? No, any you know thoughts? we're working again, right? We got a new project coming. Well, what not? Has Has Matt told you we got a new project coming? <laughs> no. Ooh, we're breaking news here. Ooh, you got to tell me when you get on camera. Well, it's. Uh, Can you tell it on camera? No, no. Okay. <laughs> I haven't heard from him in a while, so I, I have no clue where yeah. he's. Well, I mean, I I assume that they are keeping the team together. Oh yeah, I mean Matt will always, you know, I mean, yeah. I like to think Matt will always use me on stuff, but yeah. Well, headline: 
we're doing more and we're keeping the team together, but I won't say what. Yes. <laughs> and for, and for us, Taylor, I, there's a backlog of so many pages of drawing blood, but we're waiting on a couple of pages here and there to, that's all right. Uh, and that will come at you. <laughs> January <laughs> is totally open. So that, that'll, yeah. January is probably when those are going to start landing on you. And, that's uh, and there is another Elvira series coming. I've written yes, I, I two of those. You probably already heard about those. I, I peeked at the uh, the folders, so I know it's. Oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, yeah, right now it's two scripts and three or four covers. Yeah. Uh, the internal art has won't probably be started till January. Uh, but uh, but yeah, there is there. there Let me finish right now my schedule here. What else? Are you I'm I'm glad we can deal with well let's so let's go around uh, John what do you have coming up and where can people find you on the web uh, I'm I'm on Twitter and I'm really not doing much these days I've I've been doing Mars Attacks Red Sonia with Dynamite and it looks like mm -hmm. I'm doing a little more stuff for Dynamite uh, I've got a book called Bermuda coming out with uh, uh, Nick Bradshaw and IDW this spring and we're gonna do another Chew C H U the secret right. To chew or the kind of the sideways sequel uh we're gonna do more coming in 2021 great uh probably summerish i mean we're we're not rushing anything right now the world's too weird to uh is to there rush. a trade coming of chu yeah yeah coming in uh july or coming in january 20th okay so we're looking at the summer for the you know the follow-up all sorts of things to look forward to on january 20th yeah and then i've got um I've got some non-comic book stuff percolating that I hope the world will hear about someday soon. Nice. Nice. Very nice. Yeah, I really, by the way, I really enjoyed The Man Who Fucked Up Time. When is that? Is that oh, getting Oh, yeah, you know, that was, a, that was one of those books that I got halfway through and then was just like, holy shit, can I stick to the landing? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and somehow it was very it complicated. And I think it's going to read better in trade because there's a lot of really complimentary, like, Hey, this page of issue four, you know, issue four, page three, panel three is the same as issue two, page 13, you know, whatever, like, but different. And you won't get that month to month, but when you read it as a trade, uh, I think, uh, I think it's going to be really cool because you can like flip back and see all like the, the ways, you know, time branched out and returned. Sure. So it, it was, uh, it, it, it was scary. And I'm not used oh, to being yeah. scared. Time, uh, time, time travel stuff. It reminded me, uh, one of the first things I wrote for that game company was about time travel. And your book reminded me of a thing that I put in that, which was, it's actually very similar to something in Man Who uh, Fucked Up Time, where a time traveler who visits the hallway outside Lincoln's box at Ford's Theater will inevitably look, run into... 300 guys in space armor trying to get to that box you know some of them to make sure he dies some of them to make sure he doesn't die like that's one of the focal points that idiot time travelers always are drawn to to uh to to fight to the death for sure. the right to either save or kill lincoln but you know so, it was weird going into 2020 i had like five or six books on my plate and 2021 is a lot lighter and it's a lot lighter intentionally you know i'm i'm just trying to see what comics in the world's going to be right now. Sure, of course. And Taylor, I know it's always too many to list, but where can people find you? And uh, and and what do you got coming up next? Uh, so 
Twitter and Instagram. You can find me at Ghostlift. Twitter, you can also find me at Taylor Espo. Um, so let's see. Teaching seems to be going full steam, so I'll still be doing that. That's great. Uh, going to be doing the, the weekend classes soon for people who just want to take the short course. Uh, is, it, is it lettering, Taylor? Yeah, it's all lettering. I, I, do, I do production for the second years, but uh, my focus is basically lettering. Is it? It's all electronic lettering too, right? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't know how to hand letter. I'm gonna. So, I'm gonna it, uh, but, so is it like kind of half the the nuts and bolts and kind of half lettering philosophy? Yeah, the way I handle it is like the first semester is just kind of like, okay, here's how you construct balloons. Here's how you do sound effects. Here's how you set up your template, and you know, just kind of all the pieces separately. And then the second semester is like, okay, here's a book, letter it. Here's a book, yeah. letter it. Here's a book, letter it. You know, something, I, I'm sorry, I know you want to wrap up. But, no, no, go ahead. Um, no, no, do it. One of the things I did that was really valuable was um, I went to Richard Starkings one time mm -hmm. uh, with a red pen and an issue of Chew, and I just threw it on his lap and said, do your worst. You know, mm -hmm. what would you have done? And, mm -hmm. and it's interesting because he taught me some stuff, but there's some other things he would have done. It's like, no, I'm, I'm, you know, it's like comic scripts. Everyone's got their own way of doing it. Yeah. But it is interesting to like go to a master and say, you know, mark it up. What would you have done? Well, that was that was a nice thing about when I was working at DC. It was like I had people who've been doing this for five, six, seven years who were like, all right, this looks good. This could use work, whatever. Then as I started doing the cons and I would meet people like, you know, one of my one of my friends and I was Nate Picos and I loved just going to him like actually one of our issues of uh, Betty Page, I, I couldn't figure out how to do something. I was like, Nate, how would you handle this? And he's like, do this. Yeah. Genius. Why didn't I think of that? Um, so it's nice having um, colleagues who are also mentors. Like, what would you do? You know, like, I, I get to pick Tom Orzakowski's brain. You know, that's amazing. The man who, who made sense of Chris Claremont's work. Like, <laughs> and then he goes, no, dude, you're doing fine. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't get to tell me I'm doing fine. You've got to tell me everything I'm doing wrong. That's great. Um, yeah, no, we, we should do another episode about light, lettering philosophy because I, you know, I'm endlessly fascinated oh, I, by that. I could go on. I, funny and, enough. But, well, really, it's make make the eye flow with the page and don't be noticed. Yeah, yep. pretty much. Um, yep. I, I was actually having a discussion with Aubrey Sitterson, who I'm doing like a half dozen projects with this year. And at one point he was asking me to do something and I got into this whole long email about well, here's my lettering philosophy and all this stuff. And it was like maybe two pages long. He's like, oh, I get it, dude. No, 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 it's fine. I was just suggesting something. I was like, I'm sorry. I just go on a tangent. He's like, no, no, no. I love hearing this stuff. It's great that you think about it this way. Because unfortunately, you know, like kind of what we alluded to earlier, some people just do think of it as it's just dropping letters down. Like I keep telling my students, like it's so much more than that. You have to be mindful of so much. Oh, you know, what kills me is is you get some young newcomer who decided to save money, so they're going to letter it themselves. And, oh, I don't have Illustrator, so I did it in Photoshop. And it's like, mm. you, you are you are making your C comic into a D minus, you yeah. know? Uh, if you don't know what you're doing, don't fucking do it. You know, you wouldn't pencil said. a comic yourself if you're not an artist. I've, I've always said you can skimp on anything and call it style. You know, you can do a comic as stick figures and call it, it's my style. That's fine. Right. Lettering is the one discipline that has the most rules, the way I look at it. Yeah. And 
you can be flexible with them, but you can't break the rules. I mean, you can't right. break the rules, but you got to be really good. Like, there's things I wouldn't have done five years ago that I do now because I understand it so much better now. Um, but you can't, like, you can't get to that point until you've gone into the trenches. Like, okay, this is how you do it. Now we can start experimenting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, that's why I, that's why you sound is the analogy of I. You know, you can fuck around with picture a lot. Mm-hmm. and an audience will stay with you. But I realized that the continuity of hearing that a human being experiences, if you don't mirror that a little bit in your movie, the audience will never stay with you. And I think the analogy with that in comic books and lettering is if you can't follow it, you're toast. Yeah. It's simple. Like if... If it gets in the way, if the audience goes, wait, I can't, who was saying that? And the number of professionally made and printed comics, even from Big Two, where I see stuff and I'm like, they, uh, dumb editors just all age that kind of manga Star Wars, like an adaptation of A New Hope. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, like animated art, like it looked like a, a Disney movie. And, uh, and they handed it off to somebody who wasn't a letterer. And, uh, Maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe it was a different Star Wars movie, but uh, um, it was embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And it's like they could have paid a professional letter. What would have been a pittance to them? Right. And it would have looked so much better. I know. Yeah. No, there's just, it's just one of those basic, you you kind of can't get around it. <laughs> you can't, you, you got to get it right or the audience will not stay with you. I remember seeing an image online that was like so poorly lettered. I was like, oh. I know it was just a promo image. I'm like, why would you do this? Like, there's so many pro letterers around you. And then I did a quick redo of it, and people were like, oh, my God, this this looks so much better. It's like, it didn't take a lot. It just takes a little thought and care. Yeah. It would just take somebody who knows what they're doing. That's exactly it. Like, I, I don't know what the situation was. They probably just handed off someone who didn't know what they were doing to get something out the door quick. But, you know, that that's like... You know, doing something beautiful and then just jamming it into a box just to get it somewhere. It's like, but you've just ruined the good thing by like rushing it. Right. Yeah. It always it reminds me in a funny way of uh, I used to work on music videos, and these were things where we were spending like two hundred fifty thousand dollars a day mm-hmm. and shooting film and shit like that. And it always cracked me up that there's this whole inverted pyramid of work, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day the exposed film got handed to the PA who's a stoned 22 year old with a car that barely works. Who's going to now drive it to the laboratory. (laughs) (laughs) And I was always just like, are you, are you sure you want to like, that's the last man in the really, the whole thing is resting on the least trustworthy member of the crew. (laughs) You know, the first time I produced a movie, I literally took the PA to Photochem myself. <laughs> I was like, let's just establish how this is done and what best practices are, and then I can let you do it for the rest of the movie. But like, I kind of can't have the minimum wage employee be the one who can ruin everything. <laughs> like, sure. that's, that's, a, that's a problem. But anyway, continuing the wrap up. This is such great stuff, guys. Uh, I am easily found. It's one of the nice things about having an unusual last name. Uh, my website's uh, davidavalonefreelance.com, and that has all of the 
various buttons to all of the stuff I have coming out, uh, which you can find on there. There will be a new Elvira series next year, but it has not officially been announced yet, so I cannot see it, say the title. Uh, but that's what I what I got going on, Ryland. But you're doing stuff for Dynamite. Uh, yes. Me I too. Am. I am. Me too. Yeah. yeah, you know, I like, I like, uh, I like the people there. I don't like their rates, but I like <laughs> the people there. Well, that's the, you know, someone. I was talking to someone about those rates once, and about the lack of editorial nonsense. That that is the trade-off. The lack, of, and someone said, "Well, you could make twice as much money at Dark Horse." I said, "Yes," and I'd write it four times instead of once. Yeah. So yeah. that cuts that rate down by a factor of four. You know, when you go into hours spent, so I'd rather yeah. just no, ease of work and cool people. You know, okay, you know, I'm not going to get rich, but I'm going to have a good time. Yeah, but if I can do twice as much work for half, then the rate, that it's the same amount of money. So what does yeah. it matter? Yeah. Well, dynamite should call me, uh, <laughs> uh, or they can find me uh, on all forms of social media at Ryland Grant. It's R Y L E N D G R A N T for those just listening. I always spell it out because it's not a real name. Uh, my parents just kind of drunkenly threw some letters together and saddled me with it. So uh, no one knows how to spell it. Um, yeah, uh, Banjax and Aberrant can be found in fine comic shops uh, everywhere and on Amazon and uh, Comixology and all those fun places. Uh, my last two things, uh, The Jump and The Peacekeepers uh, are available now uh, via Backer Kit. Uh, I just did my uh, Kickstarter for... The Peacekeepers, which, uh, you know, ended very nicely. But if you missed out on that, uh, uh, the Peacekeepers, all one word, .backerkit.com. You can find all kinds of cool stuff on there. Um, not just the Jump and Peacekeepers, but um, also signed uh, copies of uh, Aberrant and Banjax. You know, there aren't cons anymore, so you can't uh, you can't exactly corner me at a con and get me to sign uh, something. But you can get it all there, and you can get all sorts of uh, uh, cool and crazy con variants uh, uh, that were only available for like two days at San Diego Comic-Con 2018 and stuff like that. I can't um, wait for our shows. God, yeah, I, I miss them so much. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the the big news, I mean, something that I haven't talked about on here at all is that um, uh, somehow, some way, uh, my movie got shot uh, uh, in the middle of this, this COVID oh, catastrophe. Hi. So st State of Consciousness just wrapped in... Uh, uh, we did um, about three weeks in uh, in Italy, and they kind of closed the country uh, as we were uh, as we were exiting, uh, <laughs> slammed the door behind us, um, and then we shot a couple of weeks in Guatemala, uh, literally underneath an active volcano. It was kind of the uh, the thing to do for a couple of weeks. Was uh, you know Emil Hirsch stepping out of his trailer and uh, and Instagramming himself as a, an active volcano kind of uh, uh, <laughs> bubbled and uh, smoked behind him, uh, but it is shot. It is in the can. Uh, it is all uh, up to the editor now. So, uh, so uh, I don't know how the hell it got done, but it got done uh, amid all this craziness. And so, that's good news. Um, yeah, you know, uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what's next comics-wise. Uh, but, um, but that's where I'm at. Uh, anyway, uh, great talking to you guys. Um, yeah, it was nice meeting you. Thank, thank, thank you so much. Nice uh, talking to you finally. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we go for another two hours, but uh, we will uh, sign off now. And um, yeah, see you guys. Thanks. Take care, guys. Thanks for watching or listening.
If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.